This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Last month, the European Commission drafted a law called the Cyber Resilience Act. It's an extensive framework aimed at improving cybersecurity in the EU. For the implications on this side of the Atlantic, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to senior policy analyst at the ITIF Center for Data Innovation, Kier Nuthi. So in essence, the Cyber Resilience Act creates security by design, um, which is essentially a list of essential requirements for manufacturers, importers, distributors of connected devices. When I say connected devices, it's almost entirely all digital products that connect to the internet or interconnect, uh, internet connected software. So that's a very broad amount of different devices that you and I use on a daily basis. Right. And so many of the purveyors of devices program their own software operating systems and so forth. So it's really inseparable from the device in some ways. Exactly. It's going to cover the tangible digital product. So the device itself and then non tangible digital products. So the software embedded into these devices that can't really be taken out of these devices. And when they say cyber resilience, what are they driving at here? What do they want these devices and the software to do now that it doesn't do? They want the software essentially to have or the manufacturers of these products to have improved cybersecurity throughout the whole life cycle of the product. So essentially creating a single framework for all connected devices in the European Union. Now, while it seems to be EU specific, all devices that are in the European Union tend to appear in other markets like the US and the UK. So it is going to be one of these regulations that when passed is going to affect global cybersecurity and global connected devices everywhere. It's almost like California and their bumpers and their emissions because it's such a large market. Everybody has to end up getting pulled along whether they want to or not, in other words. Yeah, it's going to be a world leading beginning step for cybersecurity. The U.S. and the U.K. are already trying to get there as well. So it's kind of a race to who does it first. Because in the United States, the software supply chain is the focus of cybersecurity right now. And that takes many forms. There's an executive order on that. There is the uh, CMMC program, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, trying to get going in the Defense Department. But it's all kind of has a theme there. Do these themes clash in some way? I think the U.S., the U.K., and the EU are all broadly tackling the same space, which is the digital products available in their markets, so the connected devices in their markets. The White House specifically has a plan for connected devices to create labeling standards, which is really similar to the EU Cyber Resilience Act. And the U.K. has um, what they're calling a product security and telecom infrastructure bill, which is a really clunky name that essentially also creates new security requirements for consumer connected products in the UK. So all three of them are tackling at the heart of new legislation devices we use every day that connect to the Internet. But what about devices that you wouldn't normally classify as consumer devices? As you move up the chain, there are home routers, but then there are industrial routers, data center type of gear that route, switch and so forth and telephone systems, IP phone systems also connected to the internet. Does it just stop at consumer products or what about all of these industrial products that are often hacked and at the center of all internet traffic? So the Cyber Resilience Act covers 
a broad swath of three categories. Class one is going to be the lower cybersecurity risk levels, but does take into account industrial software. So it's password managers, remote access software, firewalls, routers, microprocessors, modems, all of these slightly less fun on consumer devices, whereas class two focuses on high risk and then industrial devices. So products with critical cybersecurity vulnerabilities that include public key infrastructure, microprocessors, industrial switches, the things that aren't necessarily on you or me, like our smartphones, our smartwatches. And then there's an unclassified category, which tends to include things that when you think of connected devices, you naturally go to like game consoles and whatnot. Got it. So basically, if an electron flows through it, it's going to be affected in some way here. I have been calling it, if it connects to the internet, it's a pretty good chance it's going to be affected because it's just interconnected, internet connected devices at the heart of it. And the lists are so expansive that it could just change. And it does actually have in the legislation that it could change and get added or subtracted or all of these types of things. So it's an ever-changing large scope of things that connect to the internet. We're speaking with Keir Nuthi. She's a senior policy analyst at the Center for Data Innovation, part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. So what effect does this have on, would you say, U.S. regulatory apparatus and on maybe the buying plans or procurement plans of federal government agencies, if any? I don't necessarily know what the offshoot for that's going to be. What I do know is American manufacturers, distributors, and anyone who has a stake in the European market in connected devices or internet connected software and devices is going to have a stake in the game with regards to the Cyber Resilience Act. If you buy or sell in the European market, that means this act is going to affect you. And the way this act interacts with the White House's plan for connected devices and the UK's plan for connected devices is going to affect you. The interplay between the three is going to be, at least I find it personally, it's going to be really interesting to see. But what it does mean is that in order to scale up into the European market, you're going to have to take into account from the design phase of your products and services, these essential requirements, essential goals, and essential processes that the Cyber Resilience Act adds. Sure. So the federal government, for example, buys lots of PCs. They buy routers and switches from big companies like Palo Alto Networks or Juniper or Cisco and so on. These are also pretty much the same products are sold into the European Union space, maybe a slight difference in the keyboard or something, but IP is IP. And so chances are then that the stuff that we buy here could be enhanced from a cybersecurity standpoint by virtue of having to comply if this law passes and the EU does like to pass laws. If it becomes law, then we'd all benefit? We could all benefit or we could all see regulate or we could all see products that are inflexible to evolve with technological advancements. So with this list of essential security requirements, a lot of them feel kind of common sense and a lot of them you do see companies producing these products already take into account. The sheer amount of them and specificity of these requirements makes it hard to really change with moving times. So it's taking into account the cybersecurity landscape of today. Is it taking into account the cybersecurity landscape of tomorrow? 
no one really knows if that's going to be true because no one really knows where the vulnerabilities may evolve and lie. We can predict a little bit what that's going to look like. So while it is a vital step in creating harmonized cybersecurity practices in the EU, what happens in the EU has extraterritorial consequences for the U.S. So U.S. connected devices are likely to see the exact same regulations and requirements happen to them. That's almost why I believe an approach that acknowledges the differences in cybersecurity and regulates each sector most efficiently can make it more of an effective scheme to tackle cybersecurity risks. It's a great first step, but it can, A, stretch companies thin as they already struggle to comply with so many different regulations. And it's a one-size-fits-all approach that is really difficult to set into stone and keep moving as technology continues to advance quickly and more quickly than your than the year prior. Sure. It's just going to be hard. <laughs> and by the way, what apparatus does the EU have for testing compliance and making sure people are doing all of this? It's a pretty big bureaucracy, the EU, that's, you know, in addition to the governments of Europe, their own bureaucracies. Can they check even on this? So the Act's implementation is going to take place at the national level. So we're looking at all of the member states get to choose their market surveillance authorities to ensure the implementation of the Cyber Resilience Act. These can be the same people who worked on the NIST II directive or on some other cybersecurity directives and certification schemes, or they can be entirely new authorities. Essentially, they're going to coordinate with each other, conduct sweeps, to make sure that the products are cyber secure and then report to the European Commission. All of that's to say that they also have the power to start ball rolling on administrative fines and non-compliance. And these administrative fines and non-compliance are large numbers of 15 million euros, 2.5% of global annual turnover, and then decreasing downwards. So it's the member state level despite it being an EU regulation. Kier Nuthi is Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Data Innovation, part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. 
and his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.